Okay, folks, we got yet another podcast. Yeah, this one, the Wacky World of Diabetes. We're really pleased to welcome the good people from Dibaloop. And okay, Eric, I'm going to let you just tell them your last name because I know I'm going to screw this up. So why don't you introduce yourself to all these people? Give them like a little history, how you got to where you're going, and then we'll go from there. Eric Honecker from the Netherlands originally, although I spent most of my time in France, four years in the U.S., in California, actually, and almost became a doctor, went into medicine, finally decided to be an engineer, but after a few years engineering in some large groups, only got so far, joined GE Healthcare, and then got a little bit tired of large groups, and then met up with a diabetologist. His name was Guillaume Charpentier, and he said, well, you know what? I've got a lot of patients here. He works in a suburb in Paris, not the greatest part. And I'm seeing all these things with CGMs, and I've started to work with some people. There should be a way to do something because I've got a lot of patients, and I can't follow them all, and I don't know what to do. And, well, let's do something together. And that was six years ago, and hence Dibaloop was born. Now, give just people just a really quick overview of what exactly your system does. So Dibaloop talks to a CGM, obviously, via Bluetooth, Dexcom, and it talks to insulin pumps, multiple pumps, and via Bluetooth as well. So it's a handset, looks like a phone, smells like a phone, it's a lockdown phone for cybersecurity reasons. And then it will decide on insulin dosage automatically. The user will let the system know whether he's eating, have food, or sports. If he doesn't, the system's fine. There's a few patients that use it in a fully closed-loop mode, and it, it works fine. Does it work as well as you tell the system everything? No, but it works fine. And then the system will automatically tune the insulin bump with either basal rate adjustment, boluses, microboluses, depending on the situation. Well, maybe you can compare and contrast a little bit here. Okay, because now we've got, you know, we've got the 670G, the 770, the 780. We've got, you know, basal IQ, control IQ, and pretty soon we're going to have Omnipod 5. We also now have the in-pen with companion working with Medtronic. So how does your system maybe differentiate or complement those? Put yourself mid-2000s. There's this thing coming up calling cult smartphones. And then you've got BlackBerry, and then you've got Nokia thingies, and you've got the iPhone coming out. They're all smartphones, okay? So Dibaloop versus the others, yes, we're all closed loop. AIDs, AGCs, however you want to call them. Yes, it's all the same thing looked from far away. But for a user to use one system versus another, it's quite different. It's a difference between using an iPhone an Android, a BlackBerry, or a Nokia. They're all smartphones. They're all different. Some people will like one better. Is one truly better than the other? Is an iPhone better than Android? Well, hard to say. Some people like an iPhone better. What we do is focus on both the clinical outcomes, okay? Yes, sure, that's, that's, it's a given for everyone, but also give users the choice of either interact a lot, tune the system, or let the system completely go and work in almost full auto mode. Give users the choice. If they're on vacation, they want to spend time on vacation, do that. So the system is simple, tunable, 
yet behind it you've got extremely complex and powerful algorithms compared to the other entities. We're a software company. We're not a hardware company. We're from the get-go a pure software, well, physiology and quality and regulatory as well, but mostly a software company. And because of that, because we've how where we're coming from and how we've built the system, that makes it different. Now, will you say, like I know with some of the other algorithms, they learn. I'm assuming that your algorithm also learns along our person design. Of course it does. It needs to. Because every person's different. Every person's body is different, every person's physiology, but also every person's lifestyle. Some people want to be able to have as fine-tuned a control as possible, and we'll announce a meal in four different pieces, one for you know the first part, another for the dessert. Other will not tell the system at all for a meal. And you want to be able to have a system that works for both types of people. And to do that, you can either have the user spend about a month in full-time training to do 100 different parameters, or you don't do that because that's silly, and you do the self-learning that then adapts to each person's physiology slash lifestyle. Again, you can't separate physiology and lifestyle. Now, recently, you guys have signed a bunch of deals. So give, give me a kind of the, let's switch from what you do to the business aspects of what you do. Can you talk about these deals and what they're doing for you and where you're going with all of this? Yeah, so there's a couple of major things. The first is that we've been extremely frustrated because our first insulin pump that we started with was a Cellnova. I found out a while after that that Cellnova has a fatal design flaw. That didn't work out all too well. And then Vicentra with the Kaleido pump. Great pump, works great had issues with the ramp up and industrialization and the volumes on that one. And so what was really important with mainly the deal with Roche is that we could get significant volumes out to people. You know, when you have lots of people that are started using the system, having also a distribution network because Roche is Roche. They have a distribution network in many countries. That's going to drive to being a company that designs a product to being a company that puts the product in people's hands. And the main thing that the deals did was that that transition. Now the others, the Biocorp, interesting, great possible future partnership, but it's Biocorp is about the future. Roche and Terumo are about the today. So is, is the, let's go back to the Roche thing for a second, because Biocorp's more of a, what I commonly referred to as a Tyler, you know, a connected pen, a CGM in your algorithm. Whereas Roche, I, unless I'm wrong, or I, they're more pump focused than they are pen focused. 100%. Okay, so, so those two deals are not conflicting, they're actually complementary. 100% complementary. And for different people, you know, ultimately a Tyler, I mean, there's a, there's a zone of people that will have a choice. They're lucky enough that they have a choice to either use a pump with a closed loop or a Tyler. But for many people, either they don't have access to a pump because of insurance or because of the country, because there's lots of people outside where you don't get a choice, or they cannot wear one, or you know they don't want to for personal reasons to wear a pump. So there's many scenarios where it's not either or, it's complementary offering. Now, there are some people that will have a choice, good for them, and then it's going to all come down to a matter of balance between personal preference and then clinical preference. 
Well, well some people are going to look at this and going to say, well, that's really nice. But unfortunately, Roche right now, at least here in the States, is, is not even a player in the pump market. What makes you optimistic that they can be a player? You know, we're small. We're growing. We're getting bigger. We're no longer, I don't think we're no longer a startup. We're 110 people today. Yet, I don't think we're at the size yet to know exactly what's inside Roche's head. So to tell you that this is what Roche will do or will not do, a tad early. I'll just say that Roche still has a significant number of employees in the diabetes in the US. It is a global company that wants to be global. At some point of time, pretty sure they will want to re-enter and that there's a chance we might play a role in that. When, how, don't know. We'll see. Now, if, if you look out and you see like, okay, we're getting a lot of different, I mean, it's pretty much a given now that all of these, what I call hybrid closed loop systems, they've been tweaked enough where we're seeing very good results. I mean, you know, you can't, you know, you go on Facebook and I follow a lot of Facebook groups and you see these people posting pictures of time and range that are just, to me, astonishing. And are we dangerously close here to becoming a commodity with these algorithms? Is that a possibility? No, not yet. It might. If, if, there was, if there was an insulin that was incredibly fast, and even a Liam jab isn't good enough, you know, basically you're hitting a hard rock, hard block with your insulin times. Because your insulin times are still a limit, then fundamentally quality of algorithms and interaction, UI, UX, how people want to use it, what gets the people to use it, will continue to be a differentiating factor for a long time. And the difference is that it's easy to post good days. Every algorithm today will mean that people every now and then will have 95%, 98% time and range days. The question is, how do you handle it all the time in all the situations when you're sick, where you forgot to declare a meal? How do you handle pizzas? I mean, simple things as how do you handle pizzas? I don't know, but if you can find a good one here in San Diego, <laughs> let me know. They had great pizza in Chicago. So. Still looking. There's a really good pizza here in San Diego, let me tell you. <laughs> yeah, well, I'll, I'll go for Italian. I'll go for Italian pizzas. So anyways, that's not yet a commodity. There is, it, it seems like there's a lot of them. There's actually not. You do have four or five algorithms out there, no more. Four or five algorithms in the entire world with very significant differences in how they're built how they start, how their self-learning works, how the UI UX is built on top of it. So it's like, put yourself in 2004, 2005. You've got a BlackBerry and you've got an Android and you've got an iPhone. Well, they're all smartphones. They're all the same. They're all commodities, right? Well, no. Today you see that it's not a commodity yet. Well, you know, you bring up an interesting point and there, there's, a, there's a huge debate going on right now because, okay, I've heard this argument before that quote unquote, the insulins that we have quote, are not yet good enough. Yet I also, you know, the commercial side of insulin business, you know, you look at Lilly, Novo, Sanofi, you know, there's really no incentive financially for them to develop a much faster acting insulin, almost like a fresher in a liquid form. And there's a school of thought that says, okay, since it's unlikely 
that Lily, Novo, and Santa Fe, or anybody else for that matter, is going to make a huge investment in a much faster acting insulin. Shouldn't the algorithm be good enough to work with what we've got and make that work? My point exactly. So the answer to your question is absolutely. And because if tomorrow there was an insulin that starts acting in five minutes, okay, and is out of the body, so it has, when you shoot yourself a bolus, it has a completely done effect in an hour and a half, you don't need a good algorithm. You need a very simple algorithm, frankly speaking. But back to your point, that doesn't exist. And even the things that go into FIASP and Lyumjev, you know, for some people you have rashes, you have some redness, for some people it works, for some people it works great, for some people it doesn't, because they've had to tweak it and we might be at the limits. You need a very large investment and the financial incentives don't exist for that very large investment in new insulins, which means that for a long while, algorithms will still make a difference and the algorithms need to be able to make it work with what we have. Now, how, how would you look at this from a standpoint of, again, you know, you've got one school of thought that says, you know, hey, this is, this is the ultimate and way cool whiz bag. I mean, you know, this is fun with the toy. But there's a lot of people who say what's really more important than the actual results here is making this the most user-friendly, stupid thing in the world. Because a lot of patients, especially now, you know, they let's take away the, the cost issue. Let's just remove that. Would it be one of those situations where the user functionality almost trumps the performance of the algorithm? They go hand in hand. You cannot separate both, okay? I'll give you an example. I was meeting with a patient who's been wearing the system for six, nine months, nine months or so. And uh, he was telling me, and it, it was really weird because he felt almost ashamed to tell me that he stopped telling the system when he had a snack or when he was eating. And he says, I don't tell the system anymore. I know my numbers aren't all that great, but you know what? And he felt almost ashamed. I told him, that's the greatest honor you can do the system. Because if you are have confidence enough, and the UI UX means that you can have trust and just eat your damn tart or whatever you want to eat, your damn cookie, and don't think about telling the system, that's the greatest compliment you can do to the system. So UI UX and algorithm performance go absolutely hand in hand. It's like you don't have a great UI UX like Apple, an iPhone, okay, without having a damn good software under the hood. It's the same thing for us. For the UI UX to be simple, it's not a just simple. Simple is simplistic. It needs to be used by different people in different ways. You don't want to touch it, don't touch it. You want to tweak it and have it, you tweak your target because you want absolutely to be at 110 milligrams average. Be my guest and still not be bothered too much. To have that level of how you want to adapt means that under the hood, you need one damn fine algorithm. So if you had to look out, let's say you're, you know, I'm going to put you in a crystal ball. You go you're out five years from today. What do you think it's going to look like in the space that you're playing? Do you see more? Do you, do you see more players, less players? Do you see a different kind of algorithm developing because of, there's a lot of talk now that, and I'm not sure if I'm a fan or unfan of this, of 
making time and range a financial metric. A lot, you know, A1C is becoming somewhat outdated given all we've learned. So if you had to look five years from today, what do you think it's going to look like in terms of algorithms, systems? And do you see any possibility where your system might be adapted for, let's say, a less intensively managed type two? There's at least three different questions in there, but the, the first answer is, I think... For Christ's sake, I figured you could handle three questions. <laughs> so a couple of different answers on that, okay? First thing, five years from now, you're still going to see three, four different algorithms, okay? Uh, nature of the beast, people will invest, we're going to continue developing. We ourselves, we're going to have dilute second generation coming out sometime next year with vastly improved algorithm, even with what we have today. So it's going to continue to evolve. Each algorithm will, even the, 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 the ones that aren't all that great today, they will improve clearly, okay? Dibaloop being a software company and what we have in terms of physiology and data science, I think we're going to continue having our advance because we're already advanced and we're going to continue to get better. Yet, on the second question, is it going to be used for less intensively managed? Yes, absolutely. It needs, for a very simple question, simple reason. You have literally millions of people that need it. And today, everything's designed, all the tech, the cool whiz-bang things that you talk about, they're all designed for type 1. Oh, and by the way, they're designed for my mainstream type 1, not people with a kidney disease in type 1 or people with type 2 or different variations. They're designed for that. There's no f reason for that. You should have, there's a financial incentive and the capabilities, both from a in silico simulations and algorithm development and data collection and cheaper CGMs. Don't forget that the price of CGMs are going to go down is going to be a big factor in access for less intensively managed. Of course, if you know $4,000 a year for a CGM is not going to cut it for medium intensive managed type 2 patients. When you have the G7 and Abbott and others coming in, yeah, that, that opens the door for all of that. So you're going to have all those algorithms slash UI UX, because again, they're one and the same, that will invade and come in that space and expand beyond that. Tyler's going to be a piece of it. You're going to see one or two insulin pumps that will designed not to be used on their own, but to designed from the get-go to be used within closed loops. I mean, who needs a square bolus functionality when you have a microbolus working algorithm? Useless. So all, all these things, they will evolve. Hey, I'd, I'd be remiss in asking, not talking about this because, you know, it, you know, it is called diabetic investor. Tell everybody how you guys make money. So our main source is we get reimbursed, and so we basically sell a monthly subscription for the algorithm piece. Either we sell it directly to Roche, for example, or we ourselves are reimbursed. For example, in France, we have a reimbursement for actually the almost a whole system, although it's cut in pieces, so we have our own piece for, because of the performance of clinical trials, the quality of life results, et cetera, et cetera. So it's basically a monthly subscription with a small upfront for the handset, for the dedicated handset, but it's a monthly subscription. So let's say, let's say somebody, there's a user out there listening to all this, 
if if that person here in the here in the U.S. wanted to go on your system, how would they do it? In the U.S., well, first of all, we would have to get the FDA approval. Last year, we were on a, a clinical trial to get the FDA approval that got interrupted by COVID, and that we have in France. So we run a clinical trial in France. And we have not been able to restart that. So that's going to be done. End of the year, we're going to restart that clinical trial, then get the FDA approval as a 510K versus the IAGC system. Once we have the FDA approval, then we're going to have partnerships for distribution in the US. Don't know with whom yet. That's still under discussions. And then it's going to be commercially available. It is not an app. Remember, we're not an app. Today, apps, even iPhones, you know, you've got that journalist that got hacked because someone sent him a message on, on, on his iPhone. So apps on smartphones today are not yet cybersecure enough for fully automated. They will be at some point of time, just not today. So, let, so let's say somebody's in France, hypothetically, and they wanted your system. Can you give me a breakdown of like, okay, Let's say they're not doing this through Roche or whatever. They're just going to, I'm assuming they can go direct to you, correct? They go to the doctor. The doctor gets them a prescription. Okay, so what would the what would the device cost them? And what would the monthly fee be? So the current reimbursed level is in the range in France of around a little under 100 euros per month per patient for RPs. Okay. That's the reimbursed price. You got to pay a certain number of things in there. Okay. So, and I, I would make the assumption based on what you're telling me here, and given that now you have these different deals in place, that Roche will have the incentive of getting you, helping you get approved because they would like to re enter you know, the United States market. That seems quite logical, yes. Okay. What else do you want people to know about what you're doing? Give them a reason why you. I mean, listen, there's a lot of choices out there, you know, and... Zoe, why did you join Diabolube? Well, because I believe that Diabolube has an individualized solution for every person with diabetes because the algorithm gets smarter as you're wearing it. And it's also designed for people with diabetes in mind. It's possible to make it more aggressive for the times in your life when you want to have a more aggressive version of the algorithm. It's designed with the Zen mode. So if you want to just sort of, well, be in a Zen state of mind for a weekend or maybe for your special event, whatever that might be, you can tell the pump that you're just going to be in a Zen mode and it will be a little more relaxed and it won't remind you of things that would otherwise be reminders. Does that make sense to you, David? from one person living with diabetes to another? <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting because the, the reoccurring theme that I keep hearing, and, and this is, it's difficult because everybody is striving for what they call individualized diabetes management, meaning that the systems have become so smart that like my system will know who David Cliff is. Okay, they'll know my habits, they'll know my eating pattern, et cetera. And that's great if we can get there. And, 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 and that's why I think what I've always leaned towards right now is not necessarily, because I've looked at a million algorithms and they, they all do various things very well. Exactly. But that's why, to me, like the user experience has become so important. You know, because 
there are people I, I don't I, personally, I don't micromanage my diabetes. You know, I, I want to be in a certain range. You know, it's okay if I'm out of that range sometimes because I, you know, I like to have a fun time. So, but there's other people that really want to be tight control, you know, and then there's other people who really want to be loosey goosey. So the system really has to adapt to those three lifestyle patterns. And that's why when I kind of look at, you know, where we're going, I think the algorithms obviously are going to get smarter because I don't see the insulin changing all that dramatically. So the algorithms have to get smarter. It's the most important piece of the puzzle. Well, that and the CGM, yeah. You know, you got to get, get that accurate, you know, data in there. So, you know, that's kind of where when I look at this, you know, I always say the CGM is a straw that stirs the drink because, you know, you don't get that good data in there. You know, my old college professors used to say garbage in equals garbage out. So, you know, that's kind of, you know, it'll be interesting. You know, we've, we've reached the point now, although Abbott's not yet approved for AID, we've reached the point now where these sensors are getting pretty damn accurate. And so, you know, now I think, you know, it, it's, no, it's no accident that as these sensors have gotten more accurate, that the algorithm also have improved in their performance. I mean, all you have to do is look at the data. I mean, it's just, it, to me, it's just astonishing. Uh, the way things are set up right now, David, people oftentimes use the device because it's the one that they got and it's still under warranty. But the way we see the future, we're going to transform it and allow patients to have some choices so that they can, let's say, if they go to a new health plan and maybe there are some other choices or let's say they want to pay out of pocket for the combination of devices that's right for them. Dibaloop offers them that. So that's part of the magic that brought me to Dibaloop. Eric, you have anything to add to that? <laughs> One thing is that when you look at the future, there's special cases. You know, you've got people that don't have a kidney anymore that need dialysis. You have people that have truly, I mean, there's no such thing as a stable type 1 diabetes. Yeah, that's a given. But you've got things like horrendously unstable diabetes. People that literally will go from 250 to 50 milligrams in you know, 30 minutes to just boom, fall right there. And uh, people that are typically on the list for eyelid transplants or implantable pumps or things like that. And so we had, had a discussion with the doctor. He said, Eric, I don't know what to do. Could you do a special version? And so we, we did a special version of Dibaloop that got its C marking called DBLHU. And that is designed for special cases. So right now, there's only 10 patients using it. There's never going to be thousands upon thousands. But in the same way that Dibaloop will move to the less intensively managed Tyler slash type 2, we're going to keep also not forgetting about those people that cannot be handled by run-of-the-mill algorithms that need fine-tuned, more difficult to use, but more flexible, more with more latitude to tune them, those algorithms. And I mean, when you talk with talk with one person, she was literally afraid to drive to drive her car anymore because of her sudden hypos that came out of nowhere. And she, this is a person that has been had four hypocomas per year 
average over the past 10 years. So she's been in the hospital 40 times over the past 10 years. And she's been using the system for a year, and now she drives. She's actually considering maybe starting working again. That's a win. Well, ladies and gentlemen, there you go. Now, that, now, you couldn't end on a better note. You just helped somebody's life. So I'm going to thank the Diabolute team. They were awesome. And when I post, you know, it'll all be on the website. So hold on one second.